Acts chapter 2, we are in the second part of Peter's sermon at Pentecost. So we first looked at the events around the sermon of Pentecost and what we could learn from there. And then last week we looked at the first part of Peter's sermon. So like most sermons, it's pretty long. And now we're looking at the second part here today. And today... The sermon is going to be about knowing for certain. And, and as I was thinking about knowing for certain, I thought about the internet. And there are two reasons that I have trust issues with the internet. That I do not know for certain when I read the internet as much as I may joke about it. But there are two things. Number one is I have experienced so many times when an article comes out to have a couple days later an article totally rebutting everything from the first article so that is now giving me, now today, when I read an article, I wait a couple days to see if it actually is true. So that's the first thing that has caused me to mistrust the Internet. The second thing is my old college roommate, Travis. Travis, who, by the way, is a Presbyterian pastor now. um, Travis, in his wild days, uh, would often take our other friend, Matt, who's now another Presbyterian pastor, and he would insert Matt into different Wikipedia articles. So Matt became, as it were, the Forrest Gump of the Internet in that it was amazing the things that Matt had accomplished, things that were designed after Matt, and things that Matt invented, apparently including, but not limited to, a tennis racket whose handle in some way was modeled after Matt's body, which to this day I still do not understand because he did not add a fake picture to that. But you have these things on an internet. You could go on, especially the beginning days of Wikipedia, and just change anything you wanted. And you could wait, and you might get away with it for a couple weeks until they changed it back. But that's why websites like Snopes.com exist. These are fact-checking websites. The fact that we even have to have fact-checking websites shows the necessity of them that there is a need for us to know for certain. For us to know what is truth and what is a lie. And so today, Peter is going to share how you can know for a fact that Jesus is the only Savior who died for us who rose again, who ascended to the Father and offers us forgiveness and eternal life forever. And you can know that for certain. And so today we're going to look at a couple facts that Peter presented. We're going to look at some witnesses to the truth that Peter says. And we're going to see if you're following along in your bulletin there, the big idea that we can know with certainty that Jesus is the promised Savior who offers forgiveness and eternal life. 
So let's look at fact number one. We're going to be look at verses 22 to 23. Follow along as I read. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. So fact number one. Jesus was approved by God. Jesus had a special commendation from God himself as God's messenger, as his representative, as his savior. So how do we know that's a fact? Well, we have some witnesses. First, we have God as a witness. Look at verse 22. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him. That God acted as a witness through the miracles of Jesus. That Jesus was attested or verified or confirmed by God. It's like what the writer to Hebrews said in Hebrews chapter 2, it was declared at first by the Lord and it was attested to us by those who heard, verse 4, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. That one of the reasons that we have record of the miracles of Jesus is to show that Jesus was God-approved. Because if God did not approve of Jesus, if God did not have Jesus do what he was doing, then he wouldn't have been able to do miracles. And maybe you've wondered, why? Why do miracles happen? Well, one of the reasons is to be a witness, to testify to you that Jesus is more than a man. That he is God's Savior, that God sent him and that God gave us evidence to look at that we could observe and that God did that through miracles. But this fact does not just have God as a witness. This fact has the people as a witness. Look again at verse 22. A man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him. Look where. Look where he did it. In your midst, as you yourselves know. Jesus had a very public ministry. He says when he's on trial, I didn't do anything in private. I did it so everyone could see. And Peter is saying, you yourselves saw the miracles. He's saying, look, you don't even need to believe me. Believe your own eyes. And he's using their own testimony against them. In fact, we have extra biblical sources like the historian Josephus, which include 
that Jesus was a miracle worker. Josephus did not believe in Jesus, but it was known that Jesus did miracles. And we have that outside of the Bible. So the Bible is not the only place that says Jesus did miracles. So it was known to the people of that time. And Peter is telling them how to interpret the evidence. You all saw the miracles. Those miracles were the witnesses of God for Jesus. Fact number two. Jesus rose again. Let's look at verse 24 to 26. Or to 32, excuse me. God raised him up, this Jesus who was crucified, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he was both died and was buried. And his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him, that he would set one of his descendants on his throne. He foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. So first, go back to verse 24, thank you. Again, we see God as witness to the resurrection. So how did God act as a witness to the resurrection? Because again, Peter could just say, God raised him up. And they'd be like, how do you know? So the first piece of evidence is that lovely piece of evidence called, called God said so. So look at verse 25. That God spoke through David. God witnessed through the writings of David in This particular quote is from Psalm 16. I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of light. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Now remember, Peter is talking to Jewish people. And he's quoting to them from their Bible, which they knew as Jews, this was the word of God. This was not a debate with them. So when David is speaking in Psalm 16, it is God speaking through David. And so God is acting as a witness. But the question arises, probably in their minds, well, how do you know that's about Jesus? How do you know this talk of resurrection and not seeing corruption and not having his soul abandoned? How do you know that's about Jesus? And I can picture Peter saying, thanks for asking. 
Let me tell you. Because we have some facts about David. Fact number one, David died. The first reason we know this is not about David is that David died. Look at verse 29. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he is both dead and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. So the first piece of evidence in this argument is this is about Jesus because it can't be about David because David's dead and he's in a tomb and you can go visit the tomb because we all know where it is. David's dead. We know we can take the tour of Jerusalem and see the tomb. So it can't be David. Well, what else do we know about David? Secondly, we know David was a prophet. Look at verse 30. Being therefore a prophet. In the Jewish understanding, and sometimes when we make categories of the books of the Bible, this gets a little lost. But in the Jewish mind, and in our mind, it should be there, that every writer of scripture can be referred to as a prophet. So we talk about the historical books, right, after the first five. Well, in the Jewish categories, they're called the former prophets. And you can talk about the prophets referring to the whole Old Testament. And so Peter is saying, look, we know David was a prophet because through David, God wrote parts of the Bible. So we know he's dead. We know that he speaks for God, that God gives him words to speak. And lastly, we know that David was promised the Messiah. Look at verse 30. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne. As you study David in your Bible, you see that the promised Savior was to come through David's lineage. That's why Christmas is important, where Joseph goes to Bethlehem, the house of David. That's why those lists of names of people begatting other people is important, because it connects Jesus to David. So we know David was dead. We know he was a prophet, that he spoke for God, and that all of the Old Testament points to Jesus, and we know that he was promised the Savior. And so David's heart is glad because he knows that promise will be fulfilled. But again, how do we know? How do we know this is true? How do we know that this actually happened? That, okay, maybe we understand that the promise was there of resurrection. Again, how do we know it's Jesus? And again, Peter says, thanks for asking. Look at verse 32. Back up to 31. He foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. Verse 32, this Jesus God raised up, 
and of that we are all witnesses. So again, another layer of evidence that the disciples, the early believers, have seen Jesus. He's saying you can know that this prophecy is about Jesus because we have seen him raised up from the dead. And that is something that is particular to Christianity that throughout the New Testament, you see the writers referring to the eyewitness testimony. There was no fear of, oh, if they figure out our secrets, we'll all be busted. But no, time and time again, people are said, go talk to these people because some of them are still alive. There is eyewitness testimony that corroborates the testimony of Scripture. My friend Joe has a, has a favorite quote that goes something like this. If someone says they're the Son of God, don't believe them. If they say they're the Son of God and rise from the dead, start taking notes. And that's exactly what Peter is saying here. We know Jesus is approved by God from the miracles. And we've even seen him resurrected. That God raised him up from the dead. And you can ask us about it. Fact number three. Jesus ascended to heaven. Look at verses 33 to 35. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, that's referring to the ascension there, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into heavens, but he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. So again, we see God as witness. And God again witnesses through David. The quotation there in verse 34 is from Psalm 110. Interestingly, this is one of the most quoted chapters in your whole Bible. When you count the, Old, the New Testament's use of the Old Testament, this is in, depending on who's counting, the top three uh, one count I saw had it tied for second. Now, again, let me just give a little plug for small groups. In your small groups, you'd have time to go read Psalm 110 if you wanted to. Or you could go read Psalm 16. And it'd be great. And you'd love it. I promise. Last plug. Okay. But again, God is witnessing through his word. And again, these are Jewish people who believe the truth of God's word. These are not pagans who are like, well, who cares what God's word said? No, these are people who believed in the word of God. And he's saying, look, God said this was going to happen. And when God speaks, it's truth. We believe that, they believe that. Or at least we should believe that. So David said, the Lord said to my Lord, 
Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. But that can't be about David. The king said to his Lord, someone greater than King David. And the picture is of King Jesus. This is a wonderful picture in your Bible of Jesus as the victorious king seated on a throne. The idea is a picture of the power of Jesus, of the sovereignty of Jesus. Look at verse 35 there. Until I make your enemies your footstool. This is incredibly powerful and incredibly able to change your life because any enemy of Jesus, any wickedness, any injustice, any corrupt power, no matter how big, is but a little stool compared to Jesus. I want you to think about the last time you got into a fight with your ottoman. Now, maybe you stubbed your toe on it, but chances are, if it got the first hit in, you got the last. And like I've said before, if you've you've heard me say this before, I've never met anyone afraid of an ottoman. And that's the picture the Bible has of wickedness, of injustice, of evil. Compared to King Jesus, they're a little stool for his feet. That's your Savior. That's your God, the God that cannot be defeated, the God that cannot be overcome, the God who will one day bring complete justice. Because no evil in this world can defeat him. He will one day wage perfect and just war on all sickness, death, and evil. And since they're only a footstool, he's going to win every time. There is a hope of justice. Because we live in a world full of injustice and pain We live in a world of war and famine and many believers in other countries understand that more than we do. And especially to them, but also to us, is said one day Jesus will conquer all of his enemies because they cannot stand up to him. We believe in a perfect eternity where even every tear will be wiped away. And it doesn't come through you and me just making everything better. We're called to that, but that won't bring perfection. And the good news is it's not up to us. Because I can't do that. I can't conquer all of that. I rely and I hope in the conquering king who loved me so much he died for me.
And since he has died, risen again, and is seated at the Father, we know his victory is secure. He will win because no enemy can defeat our king. But again, don't just take my word for it. Don't just take God's word for it. Again, we see the people themselves as witnesses. Look at verse 33. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God. So here's this fact he's presenting. Jesus has ascended and is seated at the right hand of God in power. Well, how do you know that's true? And having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, there's the Holy Spirit again, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. Again, this is in Pentecost. I know we've broken it up into a few places, but remember we're in Pentecost here. And they are seeing the outward observable manifestations of the Spirit. And what Peter is telling them is all these things you're seeing, all these manifestations of the Holy Spirit, they are proof to you that Jesus is where I said he was. That Jesus is victorious because if he was not ascended and seated at the right hand of God, he would not be able to fulfill his promise and send the Spirit, which you guys are seeing. Again, you can see it with your own eyes. He's saying, open your eyes to what you're seeing. You're seeing the Spirit, and that is proof to you. You are your own witnesses that Jesus is the victorious King. And all of this leads up to verse 36. Again, he's creating an argument. Fact one, fact two, fact three. And then in 36, he seals the deal. If all of this is true, then this is true. We're going to see that therefore Jesus is the promised and victorious Savior. Look at verse 36. Let all the house of Israel therefore know. Excuse me. I'm going to start again. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you've crucified. With all of this evidence, with all of these witnesses, it's not just an emotional feeling. It's not just something that if you get caught up in all of this, all the hubbub that you're going to just feel for that moment. No, no. It's better than that. It is something that you can know for certain because you have the witnesses. You have the witnesses of the Word of God and you have the witness of what you are seeing. And all of it points to this fact that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified, that Jesus is the crucified and victorious Savior. That He is the promised Messiah that was to come and save His people from their sins. And you don't have to doubt that because you can know 
for certain. This word for certain, here it's in the adverb. Well, the noun is used at the beginning of Luke chapter 1. And we know that Luke wrote sort of part 1 and part 2, the book of Luke and the book of Acts. Well, at the beginning of Luke chapter 1, he says this, It seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. This certainty that what you've been taught is true. And Peter is saying to the people around him, look at all the evidence and you can know for certain that it's true. That Jesus is the one Savior. That Jesus is the victorious Savior. That, that they are welcome to weigh the evidence, to talk to the eyewitnesses, that he even uses their own eyewitness testimony against them. And this is how we get to 37 to 41. Because if this is true, the proper response is to repent of sin to believe in Jesus and to be baptized as a sign of that inward belief. And that's what 3,000 of them do. They listen to the evidence. They listen to what God's word says. They are cut to the heart and they repent and believe. And for some of you today, you need to follow the crowd. You need to follow those 3,000 who understood the truth of God's word and repented of their sin and believed in Jesus and as an outward testimony of that belief were baptized that very day. Because if all of this is true, that is the only response. It's the only response that secures the resurrection for you just as Jesus was resurrected. It's the only response that gives you the forgiveness that comes through the cross of Christ. With all of these facts, Jesus shows himself to be the only Savior because he is the only one that God's word was talking about. So repent and believe. And if you've done that, if you've repented of your sin, if you've believed in Jesus for the forgiveness of sins and the gift of eternal life, maybe the next step is you need to be obedient to the command of baptism. We're planning a baptism for October 12th right at the end of the service. And if you've never done that, if you've never done that outward symbol of the inward truth of belief and repentance, come talk to me, come talk to one of the elders, and we'll do it on October 12th. And then you can look back. You can look back with certainty that I 
did believe. I did understand that I was a sinner in need of the grace of Jesus Christ. But if you've already done that, what else do you need to see to change your life today? Number one, we need to understand that our God is sovereignly in control of the universe. If you're a believer in Jesus who's placed your trust in Jesus Christ, you need to hear from this word that God is sovereignly in control of everything in our universe. Look at verse 23. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. God is in control. The God who loves you is in control. And and the fact that prophecies came true is a sign of the sovereign power of God. I can't prophesy without sovereignty. And it's God's sovereignly sovereignty that allows him to speak in the past and have it come true in the future. So every time you see a prophecy come true, every time you read the Christmas story and see all of those times where God's word came true in the life of Jesus, you need to see the sovereign guiding hand of God on your life. Because only a sovereign God can say, this will happen, and it does. Secondly, if we have certainty about Jesus, we can have certainty in the hope of eternal life. You can know what's going to happen when you die. Because we know that Jesus defeated death. We know that every enemy will be defeated by him, including death. And so you can know that you have the hope of eternal life. And let me just say that that is something the world cannot offer. When I talk with unbelievers, what I hear so much is a lack of hope because there is nothing and no one in their life that can guarantee hope. But Jesus can. And he does. And if you have placed your trust in Jesus Christ, if he is your Savior, you can know the hope that he gives you in eternal life. And let me just add that people are hungry for that. Because hope is a stabilizing force in your life. Because whatever you do to me today, You cannot take my hope away. You can even kill me, but you cannot take eternal life from me. And if you don't see how that changes your life, you need to take a hard look at your life. Because the hope of the future, the certain hope of future, changes how you live today. And if you don't have that hope, you're going to live differently today. Thirdly, and I've already talked about this a little bit, but the idea of looking forward to perfect justice. That one day, every wrong will be made right. 
perfect justice will be done because King Jesus is seated on his throne. And again, people in other countries, especially all that we've been seeing in the current events, when they pray for the justice of God, they're being killed for the sake of Christ. Don't you think they have a hope of justice? They might understand it better, but it is our hope too as we are inundated with 24-hour newscasts and it's overwhelming and it can throw our world into chaos because we're like, what a bunch of garbage. And maybe you don't say garbage. But what we do have is the hope that God will make all things new. He will punish all evil and all injustice and all will be made right. Lastly, I just want to say it one more time that we can know for certain that Jesus is the only Savior. I'm not my Savior. You you are not your Savior. I'm not your Savior. You're not my Savior. Jesus is the only Savior. He is the only one who deserves our trust and our belief. There's no other way. Like Peter said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We could add to that you and no one else. So why do we try to find life outside of Jesus? There is no life outside of Jesus. Because he is the only promised and victorious Savior. And today, you can know that for certain. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for Peter's sermon. We thank you that you used him to preach the good news of Jesus Christ and that we can have certainty today that Jesus is the Savior that we need, that he is the Savior who offers us eternal life, that he is the Savior who defeated death and will defeat every enemy. And I can know that today. God, help us to understand the hope that you offer. God, help us to live today with that eternal perspective. That when we know we have hope in the future, we can live radically Christ-like lives today. God, we thank you for all of the testimony that we've heard in this passage and how much you speak and how much we can look at and and know for certain that Jesus is our Savior. And God, that, that we would repent and we'd believe in Jesus and that we would then know the hope of eternal life. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.